0: Hello and welcome to the program. I am Luke Hunt, and this is another podcast with The Diplomat. And with me is Bradley Merg, a Cambodian-based, very senior analyst and academic. Bradley, welcome to the program. Thanks, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, it's been quite a couple of months, actually, I guess, in uh, terms of uh, geopolitics in Asian and around the region. We've had the Quad and the Orcas deal is obviously... Uh, creating waves, pardon the pun, but um, (laughs) the biggest factor for me looming on the horizon really is China and its debt issues, which has the capabilities to reshape regional dynamics, certainly economically, which has been its main, uh, where economics has been used as a big hammer in uh, China's foreign policy.
1: We see debt issues at two levels. Uh, We see Chinese domestic debt problems and we see Chinese aid debt problems. And I think the second one's uh, the ones that has received the most attention among international relations scholars by its very nature. Um, With China aid data releasing uh, new figures, essentially quantifying with uh, reliable source material, um, that a significant amount of uh, Chinese lending to uh, BRI member countries uh, has been off the books. It's been hidden. It's not been shared publicly. Uh, This shouldn't come as any surprise, as folks who have been digging into Uh, Chinese aid across various countries, have looked at contracts that consistently change. We see changes from concessionary loans to non-concessionary loans project figures that are regularly updated and different from different locations and different sources. So this is really quite a big step for aid data uh, in terms of demonstrating that fact and also reconfirming that certain states, Laos in particular, has received the most attention uh, very significantly in debt to China. Mm. And while I don't think this fundamentally shifts the debate about debt trap or debt trap diplomacy. Um, It does uh, reinvigorate it in the sense of, yes, there are certain states that are now more vulnerable. It's now more obvious what their balance sheets look like and their vulnerability to Chinese pressure simply because of the amount that they owe to one single donor.
0: The differences in the numbers of what we had versus what we're hearing now, are quite extraordinary. The American Enterprise Institute put a value of about $43 billion on the total number of BRI contracts that were signed. And then the latest data put the total loan figure over 18 years at $830 billion, with Cambodia and Laos total debt from China now exceeding 10% of GDP. Now, these are the sorts of the numbers that uh, bankrupted the European countries a few years ago. So I think
1: what we see for uh, Cambodia and Laos, I do think, are qualitatively different uh, in terms of their, their debt realities, um, where Laos is in a much, much, much worse position. And uh, Cambodia has uh, maintained its level of, of foreign debt at a, at a reasonable level. And I think we do see that from the National Bank of Cambodia. Uh, and I do think that the numbers broadly from NBC are, are reliable, uh, in terms of where the country stands, in terms of its debt position. Uh, so, but Laos, conversely, uh, we are seeing quite quite disconcerting figures, uh, mm. and and Laos itself going into questions of, of whether it's going to be able to make and make its payments uh, in terms of what it's owed, and probably not that it will not be able to do so. And if that is in fact the case, that is an enormous black eye for China.
0: Where does it leave Laos though? I mean, in the West, say we examples would be the Philippines, where extreme debt has uh, justified the World Bank and IMF stepping in. We're in an awkward situation, would the World Bank or the IMF be prepared to step into countries which have racked up these enormous debts to China, and they're not transparent, they're dreadfully opaque, and uh, it would be a pretty hard job to sort of figure it out and restructure an economy in that situation.
1: Well, I think we're not seeing a situation where where, we're yet, really. I think the ball is in China's court, essentially, in terms of how China deals with this debt and the debt that it is owed and what happens if and when Laos basically defaults and can't pay or whether we will actually hit that point. I think that China, uh, as we saw in their white paper from January, saying that they're committed to responsible lending, that they want to basically do better infrastructure, this is a test. Um, of saying, all right, well, here's a case. Do you really want to go through this Sri Lanka port debacle all over again? Mm -hmm. Um, Or um, it's time to put your money where your mouth is and restructure the loan or come up with some alternative for Laos uh, beyond uh, some uh, version of, of taking of assets, et cetera. One of the most interesting stories about China over the last year has been that China has made these commitments to a new approach to BRI, to a new approach to sharing of hydrological data for the Mekong River. And those were great statements, and everyone applauded and was very, very glad to see mm. that China was doing this. Um, but they also came with an eventual bill that had to be paid uh, in terms of when are you actually going to do this? When are we going right. to see improvement? Um, and this is, Laos is a case of, okay, the bill's come due, um, and everyone's waiting to see what, what China's going to do. So China does have the opportunity here to rebuild some goodwill and to try to push back and say, okay, yes, we will renegotiate or Uh, we're, We're aware of this fact. At the same time, we look at BRI, and it's always difficult to say, well, there's this amount of BRI lending. So it's more comfortable to say this is Chinese lending, as we never really have a clear list of, okay, what actually counts as a Belt and Road Initiative project. When BRI started in 2013, do we consider projects in Chinese lending from earlier than that as part of BRI? Some, yes, some will see official statements. Um, statements by Chinese ambassadors saying this is a BRI project. Others simply sit there and people include in general Chinese lending. So there's a huge debate among folks that study BRI as to what exactly counts as BRI. But if we put that all to one side Mm -hmm. and simply say this is a story about Chinese lending in total, then we can sidestep the BRI question and say, well, let's just take a look at Chinese lending in general and its, its practices and its policies.
0: Ask a dirty question then. Elton Road Initiative, are the glory days over?
1: Yes, I mean most, most, most assuredly. The period of basically uh, China coming in with loans and no one really giving them a second look and not being analysed by outsiders, not being transparent, um, are finished. I think that, that China admits it itself uh, in its paper, which is almost a, a statement of, yes, we get mistakes, we're made, and mm-hmm. we're going to be doing things differently in the future. Again, whether that will happen, that's a question. Uh, as to how that, will, how that will occur. But we're, we're, we're past the, the sort of free-for-all that occurred previously. At the same time, we also see that uh, there have been responses to BRI. Uh, we saw that uh, other countries have basically responded to states that seek lending from China and said, well, let us take a look at this and let us take a look at uh, how much they're giving you, what, what your what your estimates. like going to a car mechanic and if you know nothing about cars and then you ask your buddy who's a car mechanic and say, am I getting ripped off here? Uh, and they yeah. say, yes, you are, it should, be cost, it should cost 30% less. Uh, and then that government then goes back to the Chinese and say, we checked with so-and-so, and they say, here's what the actual numbers are. Um, at the same time, China continues to refuse to move away from tied aid, from from forcing countries essentially uh, who agree um, to purchase from Chinese state-owned enterprises. Um, They are not moving towards accepting of the OECD Development Assistance Committee principles and they've reframed this all now in terms of, well, we don't do that because this is south-south cooperation. Uh, and therefore it should be viewed differently, it should be conceptualized differently, and it's an interesting argument, but at the end of the day, it's remarkably challenging for the second largest economy in the earth to essentially claim that, oh, we're just another developing country uh, and the rules don't apply to us, when, I mean, my favorite example is when Slovenia um, adheres to OECD DAC principles. Most countries do. Uh, the question China has to really answer is, well, why do you get an exception, and what is this South-South policy, and why does it justify not adhering to best practice and what is globally viewed as solid standards of transparency uh, and ensuring that loans are done at a concessionary rate? Uh, and Because that's aid. Anything else is, is, mm-hmm. is, is, really needs to be conceptualized as something else.
0: You're reminding me of, uh, I'm sure it was Xi Jinping a few years ago, Perhaps when he was in Australia, on one of these, it was around about that time. His justification for Chinese behaviour was that China is special. And he... yeah, um, it's
1: it's 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 an interesting. Well, I don't think we're going to be see, seeing President Xi visiting Australia again anytime soon. No, no um, uh, it's, but arguing that China is special, one could make that contention, and I think a lot of people gave China a lot of time saying, OK, China's new to aid. It's new to this process. It's it's moving into a world that it doesn't have a lot of experience in, uh, and it has to climb the ladder. It has to figure out how to go about doing lending, how to go about doing aid policy. But bri has been around now for, for long enough yeah. that there's a, just a point you have to say, well, how, I mean, how long is it going to take? When do you finally prove and, and show us uh, that things are getting better? Because Special can mean, okay, we just adhere to different rules, or special can mean uh, we're just not playing by the rules and are acting out of
0: self-interest. Lots of countries are special. Uh, Cambodia had enormous amounts of goodwill in the 1990s because of what had happened here through the Civil War. Those days are over, and I don't think China can fall back on that we're special kind of line.
1: No, China's lost. In my view, China had a a remarkable opportunity over the course of uh, the Deng Xiaoping era, And then uh, moving in through Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, the the narrative of China's peaceful rise or responsible power, China's perpetual citing of its role in the Asian financial crisis back in the 90s as as we were being highly responsible and and didn't didn't do what other countries did. Um, Look at the uh, huge amount of support we've given and how fast we recovered in 2008, 2009. And then things shifted. Uh, we, begin, we began to see it at the uh, sort of second portion of President uh, Hu Jintao's uh, period, uh, and then we see an enormous change, of course, during the Xi Jinping, era, uh, where all pretense of, uh, of, of peaceful rise, harmonious power is over. Um, right. Essentially, a we are here, we are China, it's our time.
0: Even, a, even uh, simply following the rules of the WTO or UNCLOS? in the South China Sea?
1: Ignoring the 2016 Hague arbitral ruling on on, on the South China Sea, and and then reiterating again January 1st of this year, and then in September, we saw new guidance uh, from the, the Chinese government to its own institutions as to what procedures, what needs to be adhered to, what needs to be followed for any entity seeking to transit through the South China Sea. And of course everyone's ignored it i mean we've just seen a, a flood of, of, of freedom of navigation operations in the south china sea and in the taiwan strait but china has decided it's it's just not going to do it and at the same time we have to look at the fact that china is handcuffed to some degree it's handcuffed due to its own approach to legitimizing the rule of the chinese communist party which is on two different pillars the first yeah. is economic success The second is nationalism. Essentially, the Chinese Communist Party must be more nationalist than that. Mm. Um, And when the economics start to get disconcerting, we naturally see a ramp up in the rhetoric, and we see uh, the Global Times do its thing. Uh, One of the the most well-known state propaganda. It's an uh,
0: argument that's been pushed for decades. Uh, Hong Kong, 1990s, the whole argument about Taiwan would be that... uh, China will rise, its economy will grow, it will become much bigger and then the economy, like all economies, will falter and what will happen with Taiwan and how things are playing out now in the South China Sea. It was scripted 25, 30 years ago. There's nothing dreadfully surprising about any of this. And then the Quad reemerged, and AUKUS, the deal between Australia, the United States and the UK, uh, which will enable Australia to... Uh, own its own fleet of uh, nuclear subs. How has that changed the dynamics regionally? Obviously, quite significantly. uh, Yeah, just a bit.
1: Um, On the the one hand, uh, I agree with uh, folks, including uh, the Indian Indian foreign minister, um, who basically said, well, the Quad and AUKUS are are fundamentally different things, uh, and AUKUS is not a challenge to the Quad, etc., Uh, and these are being presented as fundamentally complementary. We saw the official statement from the recent uh, Quad Summit meeting, the the leaders meeting, uh, and we see a lot of focus on COVID. We see a lot of focus on uh, economic integration, reaffirming commitment to ASEAN centrality, um, economic development, digitalization, infrastructure and uh, very uh, strong outreach as well to saying willingness to work with and and supporting uh, the ASEAN statement on uh, the Indo-Pacific, supporting the European Union statement. Uh, So they really are reaching out quite a bit to various partners, whereas AUKUS um, is a narrower grouping and is one explicitly focused on essentially technology transfer and defense. And I would uh, concur with others uh, who basically pointed out that this isn't just a submarine agreement. And the first thing I think that's mm. the most important to note is is when we say nuclear-powered submarine, nuclear submarines, we, what we mean is nuclear-powered submarines.
0: Indeed, yes. No one's talking about arming them.
1: And, and then China's jumped on this and said, well, this will yield an arms race and so on and so forth, and etc. It's like, no, this is nuclear-powered submarines. And that is one of the key elements, is as American military bases in Japan, South Korea, and so on and so forth, even Guam become more vulnerable to China, Australia, because of its distance, is a wonderful place uh, to have uh, eight new nuclear-powered submarines yeah. based. It's uh, very uh, much outside of an area where it would be as vulnerable to attack as these other locations. So that puts Australia at a very right. key location. At the same time, all of this we have to look at as coming out of uh, the five eyes and, and, and the relationships built essentially there in terms of sharing and uh, in terms of the building of mutual trust, uh, in terms of understanding of interoperability. Uh, and Canada, New Zealand, not part, not not a member, which makes sense in terms of uh, their own views as to their own uh, perspective on the Indo-Pacific. And uh, they're not being needed, uh, really, uh, or they're not seeing an China. Well, 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 It's one of the things
0: that fascinates me. Uh, being an Australian, I can vouch for the strength in the anti-nuclear lobby, and measured against Canada and New Zealand, it would be almost just as strong particularly with the, uh, the, left-wing, the left-wing political parties. What really has surprised me, though, is that they were able to get this through at all. And the main driving factor in Australia is uh, fear of China, which simply didn't exist five years ago. And I think five years ago, this deal would have been impossible to make.
1: Yes, abs- not just five years ago, two years ago. Right. I mean, this, this really demonstrates, I mean, China has done a remarkable job in alienating a very large number of people and a very large number of governments in a very short amount of time. When we look at the polling on views of China, I mean, it's off the charts in terms of negativity in the in not just the United States and Japan, where Japan it's over 90%, but in Australia, in South Korea, in Canada, the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, sort of going back to that earlier question, yeah, China has squandered that goodwill. You only can make so many statements designed for a domestic audience. Uh, and engage in so much wolf warrior diplomacy before it starts filtering through, Uh, and before actions, uh, and I think the the Chinese actions in in Australia have just been so egregious that uh, for uh, the Prime Minister and for the current Australian government, one, it's politically smart. There's no votes in being pro-China right now in Australia or, or in the United States uh, whatsoever. Ironically, uh, especially in the United States, one of the most polarized countries in the world politically at the moment, um, the one thing everyone agrees on is uh, no, one's, uh, no, one's, no one's a fan of China. Uh, and Australia, I think we saw the lobster and wine boycott uh, alone, I think, uh, galvanize public opinion in a particular way. And following this, we see the response where China simply issues a set of 10 demands and moves into just using language that is completely off the charts in terms of not being diplomatic uh, and really uh, causing causing a rift.
0: Right. There's also been other changes in the international system. So if we take a few steps back, when the uh, initial submarine deal, which went from 45 to $90 billion with the French was announced, it came about six months, I think, before the Brexit vote in uh, the UK. Obviously, UK Five Eyes, they're out. They're looking at new relationships. Then, I think it was in 2017, the uh, French conducted their own review of their own white paper. And in that, they kept talking up an alliance where by European centrality with France at the core would be underpinned by naval alliances with India, Australia and Brazil. Which, coming from Australia, that's kind of cockamamie. it, it's really kind of out there. It's far where, out there. It's, where it's, it's, that come it's,
1: from? it's very pie in the sky. In and terms it totally of
0: ignored the relationship with America and obviously what the United States does on the seven seas. On,
1: on, on, when France came out, when, and France was the first out of the gate in Europe with an Indo-Pacific policy paper, which of course makes sense, France has territory in the region, France has over a million citizens here. Um, It is, along with Britain, one of the only two European countries with reasonable power projection capability, but it's still not sufficient. It's, 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 I think, France to some degree is learning that uh, the reality is is France simply doesn't have uh, the power projection capability where countries are going to lean on it or rely on it or assume that France would come to its protection. But that that defense paper, which was widely ignored, uh, France's uh, white paper, it it was launched with much fanfare, but not a lot of detailed reading thereof. Um, Where we see at the beginning the analysis of the situation, it discusses the United States, it discusses China, its map goes all the way to include Hawaii and its conceptualization of the Indo-Pacific. But when it gets into its active steps, it talks about maintaining good relations with China, cooperation and so on and so forth. There is not one single mention of the United States, and not one. And having spoken with French defense officials, they've consistently said this was not our intention we weren't signaling anything anti-American, etc. But at the end of the day, you have to go back and say, well, this is a rather remarkable omission mm. uh, from this document. Uh, and it would seem to be consistent with, uh, with, with uh, President Macron's views, which have been interpreted by many as neo mm-hmm. uh and really, really adhering to that approach. But the, the idea of the Paris-Delhi-Canberra axis as an alternative to China and the United States is officially dead. Uh, right. I mean, it's 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 this 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 is now over uh, with AUKUS and with India's uh, now massive uh, think, affirmation for support for the Quad. I, I think it's with done. that
0: white paper, what I found disturbing was what was not in it. I didn't see any references to how India, France, Australia, and Brazil, ooh, without sounding too condescending, were going to ensure international navigation. Uh, the South China Seas, which is international waters, yeah. so it doesn't belong to China. There are disputed claims, obviously, between a lot of countries there. But uh, I just didn't see any of that, and I'm kind of left wondering, well, why would Australia be? Uh, why would
1: Australia be interested? Yeah, why would uh, India I mean, be interested? Yes. What's the? And it does seem more an aspirational document than mm. than anything else, as uh, saying, well, France will do this, and of course, it's presented when the at the time the French Minister of Defence is in Singapore and shows up with. Um, the Charles de Gaulle, and has a great, gigantic aircraft carrier, uh, and is, oh, France is here, and yeah. etc. cetera. Um, but obviously, we don't see any subsequent significant movement along those lines in terms of more investment or ex- serious expansion so, of European military. Uh, so again,
0: we're looking at a country not unlike China. It's comparing apples and oranges, but France and China. Both the countries are uh, making grand statements at home, but in real politic of uh, who controls the seas, they're just not there.
1: Well, China can, China can back it up a heck of a lot more than France can, practically right. speaking. Uh, and we have seen for the last 15 years, we've mm. seen an, an enormously active program of Chinese military modernization, Chinese naval modernization, with China itself looking to achieve parity by 2035 and then supremacy by 2049. And planning for that through shipbuilding, through the development mm. of its own carriers, the development of its own navy—a real blue-water navy—which China previously didn't have—but uh, China has put in the money enormously, and not just in terms of conventional weapons, et cetera. But we see enormous amounts of investment in technology for space warfare right, for the indeed. future, uh, which which is. So, so China has put its money very much where its mouth is in terms of its defense industry, and it's being a genuine and real security threat to the interests of the United States and to the interests of Japan and to the interests of Australia and really to the interests of any country on the planet that utilizes the South China Sea for any economic purpose, which includes almost everyone in terms of the sheer amount of shipping that goes through the South China Sea so it's it's it, it is a question. it's so France basically is there and has made a statement but hasn't really moved forward conversely China has and and this the response we see through AUKUS is a breakthrough uh, for the United States and for Australia and the UK in terms of technology sharing and saying okay this is we're, we're practically moving forward here in an area that is brand new that, that no one expected and, and and no one no one uh, no one thought was was actually going happen.
0: Right. The reshaping of public sentiment has led to a reshaping of uh, the military dynamics of the region. Chinese debt will have an impact on that as well. It's been quite a few months and Cambodia is preparing to take over as the chair of ASEAN in uh, 2022. What sort of year do you think it's going to have? A very challenging one
1: um Obviously for Southeast Asia the primary issue on the table is Myanmar uh, and that is going to suck up a very significant amount of time is, right. is how things move forward. obviously things have moved very 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 slowly in terms of ASEAN's role with Myanmar uh, even just going back to the months it took to appoint the official mm-hmm. representative from uh, by Brunei the current chair so Cambodia will have to deal with that and the question of, putting this out, if, 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 what happens if the South China Sea is back on the agenda? Cambodia does not want to be placed in a position where it is a country that has to veto it, that has to be right. the, sole, the sole veto point here. Um, so Cambodia faces challenges and uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. They're carefully planning for it and they're working to for a seamless transition, uh, have, have already announced plans to support and deepen in ASEAN integration. And I think it is important uh, and only fair to Cambodia uh, to recognize that there are three pillars of ASEAN. It's mm-hmm. not just political security. There's also economic, and there's uh, the cultural pillars as well. Uh, so we... we, And a lot of folks are going to want to judge Cambodia solely based upon the military security pillar and ignore the other two. And I think we'll probably see from Phnom Penh a stronger focus on those two uh, and trying to do its best uh, to, get, to, get, to make its way through uh, the Myanmar crisis right. uh, as much as possible.
0: And there's also... Uh... A couple of countries knocking on the door wanting in, uh, East Timor, and Papua New Guinea has been making a few noises lately mm. as well. What do you think their chances are that both countries have been discussed as potential members for the last 10, 20 years?
1: East Timor has really, really uh, knocked on the door quite strongly and, and, and really does make some, uh, quite a valid point of how is it that the half the island is part of ASEAN and the other, is, the other mm. half isn't. Um, others will say, well, this is just the sort of the, the tail end of ASEAN, it's not really Southeast Asia, this, the is, moving in, line. this is moving into a different area, <laughs> and so why should, why should Timor-Leste be a member? Personally, I think that Timor-Leste has a very strong argument of saying how, well, we were part of ASEAN when we were occupied by Indonesia, um, but now we're not. So... Perhaps we have something of a right for, for re entry. And uh, Dili is really looking uh, for, to, to push forward membership. And uh, quite a few states have, have quietly uh, at least acquiesced. There's at least one or two uh, that have uh, been quite negative about it. If Cambodia really wanted to ensure that the South China Sea issue was is not on the agenda, moving forward with uh, Timor Leste's entry into ASEAN uh, would certainly keep everyone uh, rather busy uh, mm. throughout uh, 2022. Papua New Guinea? I highly doubt it. I I, I highly doubt it.
0: There's a a lot of change happening there as well. Uh, Chinese are moving in, getting close to the Australian shoreline Mm. as well, which isn't going to... uh, It's another problem. Perhaps I'm using the word problem a little too loosely, but this is the way the whole kind of international debate has been framed and reframed. It's
1: true, and we see as China continues to expand uh, throughout the region, I mean, I think that that has to play a role in Australia's own calculus. As right. To its own security and to AUKUS and to, and to moving forward along those lines. And again, really just seeing, well, who? Do you, who? It's it's back to it's the World War Two story all over again, where Australia essentially says to the Empire, you
0: clearly can't defend us,
1: and we're going with the Americans. And it's really just a reiteration of that statement. It's, it's history playing itself out again.
0: Right. Where do you see the, the Russians in this mix? Uh, there's been a lot of uh, talks, webinars. Uh, meetings going on at high levels with Russian authorities. Most of it seems to be paperwork. But uh... it's
1: uh, it's it's there's a, there's the every year or two someone comes up with the uh, Russia's role in Southeast Asia question and wants to, and wants to do a conference on it and wants to discuss it and writes usually the same paper um, yeah. about every two or three years um, about Russia's just on the brink or Russia's about to come in and Russia's really going to make a change and look at we're seeing an increase in Russian. Uh, Foreign investments. We're seeing. I mean, I recall reading something that said, "Oh my gosh, it's up to 11 million dollars in Singapore." I mean, that's a rounding error. It's 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 (laughs) it's 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 it's, it's nothing. Um, At the end of the day, Russia's role in Southeast Asia is as a weapons supplier, and obviously its relationship with Myanmar in terms of the recent events there, um, and its historic relationship with Vietnam. Uh, That's that's it. Uh, we did see in September, we saw the signing of the ASEAN blueprint for its future development of relations right. with Russia, which tells us the same things we see in all of these. They made a
0: point of saying this is not a free trade agreement. No, this <laughs> well, is a... Why would you tell us we that? We want to...
1: And, and, and to be fair, there, I mean, Singapore and Vietnam both are have free trade agreements with the Eurasian Union, mm-hmm. uh, and these have not really facilitated an enormous amount. Uh, in terms of outcome. Uh, Vietnam and Russia do still maintain, obviously, close relations, and Vietnam has stated, uh, and I think it is important to note that Vietnam has stated that it views Russia and cooperates in Russia on security questions in ways that it does not cooperate with any other state. Uh, So if we're looking at Russia in the region, uh, I think it's less of a story of Russian ASEAN relations or Russian influence expanding anywhere really beyond Vietnam and Myanmar. It's, it's a yep. Vietnam and Myanmar story and there's not much of a story there. There's summits, there's meetings, there's discussions, but when it comes to, we, we ultimately end up with the exact same conclusion and see people making the exact same argument, it's just a matter of time. Um, Russia's ready, Russia's here, Russia can be, and Russia wants to, wants to be seen as a global power for its own domestic audience. It wants to be seen as not just a regional entity, uh, and Southeast Asia is a relatively easy way to enter. Uh, there's there's not a high probability of getting caught in something like there's Syria. There's nothing to
0: lose here. Exactly.
1: It's 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 very much there's there's very clear gains to be made. And to be fair, with the expansion of infrastructure, with the expansion of Belt mm. and Road, and the connection of Southeast Asia to Central Asia to Europe, et cetera, through the Silk Road Initiative, um, and as that's connected through economic corridors into Southeast Asia, there are arguments for increased trade, uh, but they're not. Right around the corner. They're not going. They're not, and they're not going to be very significant. Uh, They'll be there, um, but it's still realistically a story of weapons sales. Thailand receives the largest amount of Russian investment in the region, um, but Russian investors uh, have been relatively cautious uh, with Southeast Asia. There's no reason to assume, uh, especially in the current economic environment, uh, for that to change. uh, That uh, we'd see some sort of massive inflow of, of Russian cash. Uh, So I think uh, with Russia, it's yet again um, uh, wonderful photo ops, more meetings, uh, more declarations of pathways to the future, and that's about it.
0: A little bit like the French and the uh, Chinese in terms of uh, talking to the home audience and telling people in their lounge rooms how great we are and what we're doing when the reality is a little bit different.
1: It's, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's nice to have, uh, to have the, have Foreign Minister Lavrov in the region yet again and another another meeting with the, with the Vietnamese government and the usual handshakes. But in terms of practice, sure, um, I think concretely, Sputnik, uh, okay, Russia's going to provide vaccines to Vietnam, which Vietnam distinctly needs. Indeed, Um, We've all seen what's been happening just down the road in Ho Chi Minh City, uh, and Vietnam finally getting out of its its many, many many-month lockdown. Um, But Vietnam does need this. This is an area where Russia can provide a positive role. Um, But Russia's self-declared status is we can be a mediator, we can be an independent actor, we can help resolve problems. No one, I don't think anyone gives that much credibility, especially when we look at Russia, the Sino-Russian relationship. I mean, you can't really be an inter- independent party when you have such an incredibly close relationship with China.
0: Bradley Merg. on that note, thank you very much. It's been fun, as always.
1: Thanks very much, Luke. My pleasure. Cheers.